Chapter One of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lehman Chapter 1 Abraham Lincoln was born on the 12th day of February, 1809. His father's name was Thomas Lincoln, and his mother's maiden name was Nancy Hanks. At the time of his birth, they are supposed to have been married about three years although there appears to have been but little sympathy or affection between Thomas and Abraham Lincoln. They were nevertheless connected by ties and associations which make the previous history of Thomas Lincoln and his family a necessary part of any reasonably full biography of the great man who immortalized the name by wearing it. Thomas Lincoln's ancestors were among the early settlers of Rockingham County in Virginia, but exactly whence they came, or the precise time of their settlement there, it is impossible to tell. They were manifestly of English descent, but whether emigrants directly from England to Virginia, or an offshoot of the historic Lincoln family in Massachusetts, or of the highly respectable Lincoln family in Pennsylvania, are questions left entirely to conjecture. We have absolutely no evidence by which to determine them. Thomas Lincoln himself stoutly denied that his progenitors were either Quakers or Puritans, but he furnished nothing except his own word to sustain his denial. On the contrary, some of the family, distant relatives of Thomas Lincoln, who remain in Virginia, believed themselves to have sprung from the New England stock. They found their opinion solely on the fact that the Christian names given to the sons of the two families were the same, though only in a few cases, and at different times. But this might have arisen merely from that common religious sentiment which induces parents of a devotional turn to confer scriptural names on their children or it might have been purely accidental. Abraham's, Isaac's, and Jacob's abound in many other families who claim no kindred on that account. In England, during the ascendancy of the Puritans, in times of fanatical religious excitement, the children were almost universally baptized by the names of the patriarchs and Old Testament heroes, or by names of their own pious invention signifying what the infant was expected to do and to suffer in the cause of the Lord. The progenitors of all the American Lincolns were Englishmen, and they may have been Puritans. There is, therefore, nothing unreasonable in the supposition that they began the practice of conferring such names before the emigration of any of them, and the names, becoming matters of family pride and family tradition, have continued to be given ever since. But, if the fact that Christian names of a particular class prevailed 
among the Lincolns of Massachusetts and the Lincolns of Virginia at the same time is no proof of consanguinity. The identity of the surname is entitled to even less consideration. It is barely possible that they may have had a common ancestor, but, if they had, he must have lived and died so obscurely and so long ago that no trace of him can be discovered. It would be as difficult to prove a blood relationship between all the American Lincolns as it would be to prove a general cousinship among all the Smiths or all the Joneses. Footnote. At the end of this volume will be found a very interesting account of the family, given by Mr. Lincoln himself, the original in his own handwriting, and is here reproduced in facsimile. A patronomic so common as Lincoln, derived from a large geographical division of the old country, would almost certainly be taken by many who had no claim to it by reason of descent from its original possessors. Dr. Holland, who, of all Mr. Lincoln's biographers, has entered most extensively into the genealogy of the family, says that the father of Thomas was named Abraham, but he gives no authority for his statement, and it is as likely to be wrong as to be right. The Hankses, John and Dennis, who passed a great part of their lives in the company of Thomas Lincoln, tell us that the name of his father was Mordecai, and so also does Colonel Chapman, who married Thomas Lincoln's stepdaughter. The rest of those who ought to know are unable to assign him any name at all. Dr. Holland says further that this Abraham, or Mordecai, had four brothers, Jacob, John, Isaac, and Thomas, that Isaac went to Tennessee, where his descendants are now, that Thomas went to Kentucky, after his brother Abraham, but that Jacob and John are supposed to have remained in Virginia. Footnote. The Life of Abraham Lincoln, by J. G. Holland, page 20. This is doubtless true, at least so far as it relates to Jacob and John, for there are at this day numerous Lincolns residing in Rockingham County the place from which the Kentucky Lincolns emigrated. One of their ancestors, Jacob, who seems to be the brother referred to, was a lieutenant in the army of the Revolution, and present at the siege of Yorktown. His military services were made the ground of a claim against the government, and Abraham Lincoln, whilst a representative in Congress from Illinois, was applied to by the family to assist them in prosecuting it. A correspondence of some length ensued, by which the presumed relationship of the parties was fully acknowledged on both sides. But, unfortunately, no copy of it is now in existence. The one preserved by the Virginians was lost or destroyed during the late war. The family, with perfect unanimity, espoused the cause of the Confederate States, and suffered many losses in consequence of which these interesting papers may have been won. Abraham, or Mordecai, the father of Thomas Lincoln, was the owner of a large and fertile tract of land on the waters of Linville's Creek, about eight miles north of Harrisonburg, the courthouse town of Rockingham County. It is difficult to ascertain the precise extent of this plantation, or the history of the title to it, 
inasmuch as all the records of the county were burnt by general hunter in 1864 it is clear however that it had been inherited by lincoln the emigrant to kentucky and that four if not all of his children were born upon it at the time general sheridan received the order quote, to make the valley of the shenandoah a barren waste end quote. this land was well improved and in a state of high cultivation but under the operation of that order it was ravaged and desolated like the region around it lincoln the emigrant had three sons and two daughters thomas was the third son and the fourth child he was born in seventeen seventy eight and in seventeen eighty or a little later his father removed with his entire family to kentucky kentucky was then the paradise of the borderer's dreams fabulous tales of its sylvan charms and pastoral beauties had for years been floating about not only along the frontiers of pennsylvania virginia and north carolina but farther back in the older settlements for a while it had been known as the cane country and then as the country of kentucky many expeditions were undertaken to explore it two or three adventurers and occasionally only one at a time passing down the ohio in canoes but they all stopped short of the kentucky river the indians were terrible and it was known that they would surrender any other spot of earth in preference to kentucky the canes that were supposed to indicate the promised land those canes of wondrous dimensions that shot up as thick as they could stand from a soil of inestimable fertility were forever receding before those who sought them one party after another returned to report that after incredible dangers and hardships they met with no better fortune than that which had attended the efforts of their predecessors and that they had utterly failed to find the canes at last they were actually found by simon kenton who stealthily planted a little patch of corn to see how the stalk that bore the yellow grain would grow besides its brother of the wilderness he was one day leaning against the stem of a great tree watching his little assemblage of sprouts and wondering at the strange fruitfulness of the earth which fed them when he heard a footstep behind him it was the great daniel boone's they united their fortunes for the present but subsequently each of them became the chief of a considerable settlement kenton's trail had been down the ohio boone's from north carolina and from both those directions soon came hunters warriors and settlers to join them but the indians had no thought of relinquishing their fairest hunting grounds without a long and desperate struggle the rich carpet of natural grasses which fed innumerable herds of buffalo elk and deer all the year round the grandeur of its primeval forests its pure fountains and abundant streams made it even more desirable to them than to the whites they had long contented for the possession of it and no tribe or confederacy of tribes had never been able to hold it to the exclusion of the rest here from time immemorial the northern and southern eastern and western indians had met each other in mortal strife mutually shedding the blood which ought to have been husbanded for the more deadly conflict with a common foe the character of this savage warfare 
had earned for Kentucky the appellation of quote, the dark and bloody ground, end quote. and, now that the whites had fairly begun their encroachments upon it, the Indians were resolved that the phrase should lose none of its old significance. White settlers might therefore count upon fighting for their lives as well as their lands. Boone did not make his final settlement till 1775. The Lincolns came about 1780. This was but a year or two after Clark's expedition into Illinois, and it was long, long before St. Clair's defeat and Wayne's victory. Nearly the whole of the Northwest Territory was then occupied by hostile Indians. Kentucky volunteers had yet before them many a day of hot and bloody work on the Ohio, the Musk Kingdom, and the Miami, to say nothing of the continual surprises to which they were subjected at home. Every man's life was in his hand, from cabin to cabin, from settlement to settlement. His trail was dogged by the eager savage. If he went to plough, he was liable to be shot down between the handles. If he attempted to procure subsistence by hunting, he was hunted himself. Unless he abandoned his clearing and his stock to almost certain devastation, and shut up himself and his family in a narrow fort for months at a time, he might expect every hour that the roof would be given quote, to the flames and their flesh to the eagles. End quote. To make matters worse, the western country, and particularly Kentucky, had become the rendezvous of Tories, runaway conscripts, deserters, debtors, and criminals. General Butler, who went there as a commissioner from Congress to treat with certain Indian tribes, kept a private journal in which he entered a very graphic but a very appalling description of the state of affairs in Kentucky. At the principal points, as they were called, were collected hungry speculators, gamblers, and mere desperadoes, these distinctions being the only divisions and degrees in society. Among other things, the journal contains a statement about land jobbing and the traffic in town lots at Louisville, beside which the account of the same business in Martin Chuzzlewit is absolutely tame. That city, now one of the most superb in the Union, was then a small collection of cabins and hovels, inhabited by a class of people, of whom specimens might have been found a few months ago at Cheyenne or Promontory Point. Notwithstanding the high commissions borne by General Butler and General Parsons, the motley inhabitants of Louisville flatly refused even to notice them. They would probably have sold them a corner lot in a swamp, or a splendid business site in a mud hole but for mere civilities there was no time. The whole population were so deeply engaged in drinking, card-playing, and selling town lots to each other, that they persistently refused to pay any attention to three men who were drowning in the river nearby, although their dismal cries for help were distinctly heard throughout the city. On the journey out, the Lincolns are said to have endured many hardships, and encountered all the usual dangers including several skirmishes with the Indians. They settled in Mercer County, but at what particular spot is uncertain. Their house was a rough log cabin, their farm a little clearing in the midst of a vast forest. One morning, not long after their settlement, 
the father took thomas his youngest son and went to build a fence a short distance from the house while the other brothers mordecai and josiah were sent to another field not far away they were all intent about their work when a shot from a party of indians in ambush broke the listening stillness of the woods the father fell dead josiah ran to a stockade two or three miles off mordecai the eldest boy made his way to the house and looking out from the loophole in the loft saw an indian in the act of raising his little brother from the ground he took deliberate aim at a silver ornament on the breast of the indian and brought him down thomas sprang toward the cabin and was admitted by his mother while mordecai renewed his fire at several other indians that rose from the covert of the fence or thicket it was not long until josiah returned from the stockade with a party of settlers but the indians had fled and none were found but the dead one and another who was wounded and had crept into the top of a fallen tree when this tragedy was enacted mordecai the hero of it was a well-grown boy he seems to have hated indians ever afterward with a hatred which was singular for its intensity even in those times many years afterwards his neighbors believed that he was in the habit of following peaceable indians as they passed through the settlements in order to get surreptitious shots at them and it was no secret that he had killed more than one in that way immediately after the death of her husband the widow abandoned the scene of her misfortunes and removed to washington county near the town of springfield where she lived until the youngest of her children had grown up mordecai and josiah remained there until late in life and were always numbered among the best people in the neighborhood mordecai was the eldest son of his father and under the law of primogeniture which was still part of the virginia code he inherited some estate and lands one of the daughters wedded a mr crum and the other a mr brumfield thomas seems to have been the only member of the family whose character was not entirely respectable he was idle thriftless poor a hunter and a rover one year he wandered away to his uncle on the holston near the confines of tennessee another year he wandered into breckenridge county where his easy good nature was overcome by a huge bully and he performed the only remarkable achievement of his life by whipping him in eighteen o six we find him in hardin county trying to learn the carpenter's trade until then he could neither read nor write and it was only after his marriage that his ambition led him to seek accomplishments of this sort thomas lincoln was not tall and thin like abraham but comparatively short and stout standing about five feet ten inches in his shoes his hair was dark and coarse his complexion brown his face round and full his eyes gray and his nose large and prominent he weighed at different times from one hundred and seventy to one hundred and ninety six he was built so tight and compact that dennis hanks declares he never could find the points of separation between his ribs though he felt for them often he was a little stoop-shouldered and walked with a slow halting step but he was sinewy and brave and his habitually peaceable disposition once fairly overborne was a tremendous man in a rough-and-tumble fight 
he thrashed the monstrous bully of Breckinridge County in three minutes, and came off without a scratch. His vagrant career had supplied him with an inexhaustible fund of anecdotes, which he told cleverly and well. He loved to sit about at stores or under shade trees and spin yarns, a propensity which atoned for many sins, and made him extremely popular. In politics he was a Democrat, a Jackson Democrat. In religion he was nothing at times, and a member of various denominations by turns, a free-will Baptist in Kentucky, a Presbyterian in Indiana, and a disciple, vulgarly called Campbellite, in Illinois. In this latter communion he seems to have died. It ought perhaps to be mentioned that both in Virginia and Kentucky his name was commonly pronounced Linkhorn, and in Indiana, Linkhern. The usage was so general that Tom Lincoln came very near losing his real name altogether, as he never wrote it at all until after his marriage, and wrote it then only mechanically. It was never spelled one way or the other, unless by a storekeeper here and there, who had a small account against him, whether it was properly Lincoln, Linkhorn, or Linkhern, was not definitely settled until after Abraham began to write, when, as one of the neighbors has it, quote, he remodeled the spelling and corrected the pronunciation. End quote. By the middle of 1806, Lincoln had acquired a very limited knowledge of the carpenter's trade, and set up on his own account. But his achievements in this line were no better than those of his previous life. He was employed occasionally to do rough work that requires neither science nor skill. But nobody alleges that he ever built a house, or pretended to do more than a few little odd jobs connected with such an undertaking. He soon got tired of the business, as he did of everything else that required application and labor. He was no boss, not even an average journeyman, nor a steady hand. When he worked at the trade at all, he liked to make common benches, cupboards, and bureaus, and some specimens of his work of this kind are still extant in Kentucky and Indiana, and bear their own testimony to the quality of their workmanship. Sometime in the year 1806 he married Nancy Hanks. It was in the shop of her uncle, Joseph Hanks, at Elizabethtown in Hardin County, that he had essayed to learn the trade. We have no record of the courtship, but anyone can readily imagine the numberless occasions that would bring together the niece and the apprentice. It is true that Nancy did not live with her uncle, but the Hankses were all very clannish, and she was doubtless a welcome and frequent guest at his house. It is admitted by all the old residents of the place that they were honestly married, but precisely when or how no one can tell. Diligent and thorough searches by the most competent persons have failed to discover any trace of the fact in the public records of Hardin and the adjoining counties. The license and the minister's return in the case of Lincoln and Sarah Johnston, his second wife, were easily found in the place where the law required them to be. But of Nancy Hanks' marriage there exists no evidence but that of mutual acknowledgment and cohabitation. At the time of their union, Thomas was twenty-eight years of age, and Nancy about twenty-three. Lincoln had previously courted a girl named Sally Bush, who lived in the neighborhood of Elizabethtown. But his suit was unsuccessful, 
and she became the wife of Johnston, the jailer. Her reason for rejecting Lincoln comes down to us in no words of her own, but it is clear enough that it was his want of character, and the bad luck, as the Hanks's have it, which always attended him. Sally Bush was a modest and pious girl, in all things pure and decent. She was very neat in her personal appearance, and, because she was particular in the selection of her gowns and company, had long been accounted a proud body, who held her head above common folks. Even her own relatives seemed to have participated in this mean accusation, and the decency of her dress and behavior appeared to have made her an object of common envy and backbiting. But she had a will as well as principles of her own, and she lived to make them both serviceable to the neglected and destitute son of Nancy Hanks. Thomas Lincoln took another wife, but he always loved Sally Bush as much as he was capable of loving anybody. And years afterwards, when her husband and his wife were both dead, he returned suddenly from the wilds of Indiana, and representing himself as a thriving and prosperous farmer, induced her to marry him. It will be seen hereafter what value was to be attached to his representations of his own prosperity. Nancy Hanks, who accepted the honor which Sally Bush refused, was a slender, symmetrical woman of medium stature, a brunette, with dark hair, regular features, and soft, sparkling hazel eyes. Tenderly bred, she might have been beautiful, but hard labor and hard usage bent her handsome form, and imparted an unnatural coarseness to her features, long before the period of her death. Toward the close, her life and her face were equally sad, and the latter habitually wore the woeful expression which afterwards distinguished the countenance of her son in repose. By her family, her understanding was considered something wonderful. John Hanks spoke reverently of her high and intellectual forehead, which he considered but the proper seat of faculties like hers, compared with the mental poverty of her husband and relatives. Her accomplishments were certainly very great, for it is related by them with pride and delight that she could actually read and write. The possession of these arts placed her far above her associates, and after a little while even Tom began to meditate upon the importance of acquiring them. He set to work accordingly, in real earnest, having a competent mistress so near at hand, and with much effort she taught him what letters composed his name, and how to put them together in a stiff and clumsy fashion. Henceforth he signed no more by making his mark, but it is nowhere stated that he ever learned to write anything else, or to read either written or printed letters. Nancy Hanks was the daughter of Lucy Hanks. Her mother was one of four sisters, Lucy, Betsy, Polly, and Nancy. Betsy married Thomas Sparrow, Polly married Jesse Friend, and Nancy, Levi Hall. Lucy became the wife of Henry Sparrow, and the mother of eight children. Nancy the younger was early sent to live with her uncle and aunt, Thomas and Betsy Sparrow. Nancy, another of the four sisters, was the mother of that Dennis F. Hanks, whose name will be frequently met with in the course of this history. He also was brought up, or was permitted to come up, in the family of Thomas Sparrow, where Nancy found a shelter. Little Nancy became so completely identified with Thomas and Betsy Sparrow, 
that many supposed her to have been their child. They reared her to womanhood, followed her to Indiana, dwelt under the same roof, died of the same disease, at nearly the same time, and were buried close beside her. They were the only parents she ever knew, and she must have called them by names appropriate to that relationship. For several persons who saw them die, and carried them to their graves, believed to this day that they were, in fact, her father and mother. Dennis Hanks persists, even now, in the assertion that her name was Sparrow. But Dennis was pitiably weak on the cross-examination, and we shall have to accept the testimony of Mr. Lincoln himself, and some dozens of other persons, to the contrary. All that can be learned of that generation of Hankses to which Nancy's mother belonged has now been recorded as fully as is compatible with circumstances. They claim that their ancestors came from England to Virginia, whence they migrated to Kentucky with the Lincolns, and settled near them in Mercer County. The same, precisely, is affirmed of the Sparrows. Branches of both families maintained a more or less intimate connection with the fortunes of Thomas Lincoln, and the early life of Abraham was closely interwoven with theirs. Lincoln took Nancy to live in a shed on one of the alleys of Elizabeth Town. It was a very sorry building, and nearly bare of furniture. It stands yet, or did stand in 1866, to witness for itself the wretched poverty of its early inmates. It is about fourteen feet square, has been three times removed, twice used as a slaughter-house, and once as a stable. Here a daughter was born on the tenth day of February, 1807, who was called Nancy during the life of her mother, and after her death, Sarah. But Lincoln soon wearied of Elizabeth Town and carpenter work. He thought he could do better as a farmer, and, shortly after the birth of Nancy, or Sarah, removed to a piece of land on the south fork of Nolan Creek, three miles from Hodgensville, within the present county of LaRue, and about thirteen miles from Elizabeth Town. What estate he had, or attempted to get, in this land is not clear from the papers at hand. It is said he bought it, but was unable to pay for it. It was very poor, and the landscape of which it formed a part was extremely desolate. It was then nearly destitute of timber, though it is now partially covered in spots by a young and stunted growth of post-oak and hickory. On every side the eye rested only upon weeds and low bushes, and a kind of grass which the present owner of the farm describes as barren grass. It was, on the whole, as bad a piece of ground as there was in the neighborhood, and would hardly have sold for a dollar an acre. The general appearance of the surrounding country was not much better. A few small but pleasant streams, Nolan Creek, and its tributaries, wandered through the valleys. The land was generally what is called rolling, that is, dead levels interspersed by little hillocks. Nearly all of it was arable, but, except the margins of the watercourses, not much of it was sufficiently fertile to repay the labor of tillage. It had no grand, unviolated forests to allure the hunter, and no great bodies of deep and rich soils to tempt the husbandman. Here it was only by incessant labor and thrifty habits that an ordinary living could be wrung from the earth. 
the family took up their residence in a miserable cabin which stood on a little knoll in the midst of a barren glade a few stones tumbled down and lying about loose still indicate the site of the mean and narrow tenement which settled the infancy of one of the greatest political chieftains of modern times Nearby, a romantic spring gushed from beneath a rock and sent forth a slender but silvery stream meandering through those dull and unsightly plains as it furnished almost the only pleasing feature in the melancholy desert through which it flowed the place was called after it rock spring farm in addition to this single natural beauty lincoln began to think in a little while that a couple of trees would look well it might even be useful, if judiciously planted in the vicinity of his bare house yard. This enterprise he actually put into execution, and three decayed pear trees, situated on the edge of what was lately a rye field, constitute the only memorials of him or his family to be seen about the premises. They were his sole permanent improvement. In that solitary cabin, on this desolate spot, the illustrious Abraham Lincoln was born on the 12th day of February, 1809. The Lincolns remained on Nolan Creek until Abraham was four years old. They then removed to a place much more picturesque, and of far greater fertility. It was situated about six miles from Hodgensonville, on Knob Creek, a very clear stream, which took its rise in the gorges of Muldrews Hill, and fell into the Rolling Fork, two miles above the present town of New Haven. The Rolling Fork emptied into Salt River, and Salt River into the Ohio, twenty-four miles below Louisville. This farm was well timbered, and more hilly than one on Nolan Creek. It contained some rich valleys, which promised such excellent yields, that Lincoln bestirred himself most vigorously, and actually got into cultivation the whole of six acres lying advantageously up and down the branch. This, however, was not all the work he did, for he still continued to pother occasionally at his trade. But, no matter what he turned his hand to, his gains were equally insignificant. He was satisfied with indifferent shelter, and a diet of cornbread and milk was all he asked. John Hanks naively observes that, quote, happiness was the end of life with him, end quote. The land he now lived upon, two hundred and thirty-eight acres, he had pretended to buy from a Mr. Slater. The deed mentions a consideration of one hundred and eighteen pounds. The purchase must have been a mere speculation, with all the payments deferred, for the title remained in Lincoln but a single year. The deed was made to him September 2, 1813, and October 27, 1814, he conveyed two hundred acres to Charles Milton for one hundred pounds, leaving thirty-eight acres of the tract unsold. No public record discloses what he did with the remainder. If he retained any interest in it for the time, it was probably permitted to be sold for taxes. The last of his voluntary transactions, in regard to this land, took place two years before his removal to Indiana, after which he seems to have continued in possession as the tenant of Milton. In the meantime, Dennis Hanks endeavored to initiate young Abraham, now approaching his eighth year, in the mysteries of fishing, and led him on numerous tramps up and down the picturesque branch, the branch whose waters were so pure 
that a white pebble could be seen in a depth of ten feet. On Nolan he had hunted ground-hogs with an older boy, who has since become the Reverend John Duncan, and betrayed a precocious zest in the sport. On Knob Creek he dabbled in the water, or roved the hills and climbed the trees, with a little companion named Gallagher. On one occasion, when attempting to coon across the stream, by swinging over on a sycamore tree, Abraham lost his hold, and, tumbling into deep water, was saved only by the utmost exertions of the other boy. But, with all this play, the child was often serious and sad. With the earliest dawn of reason, he began to suffer and endure, and it was that peculiar moral training which developed both his heart and his intellect with such a singular and astonishing rapidity. It is not likely that Tom Lincoln cared a straw about his education. He had none himself, and is said to have admired muscle more than mind. Nevertheless, as Abraham's sister was going to school for a few days at a time, he was sent along, as Dennis Hanks remarks, more to bear her company than with any expectation or desire that he would learn much himself. One of the masters, Zachariah Rinney, taught near the Lincoln cabin. The other, Caleb Hazel, kept his school nearly four miles away, on the Friend Farm, and the hapless children were compelled to trudge that long and weary distance with spelling book and dinner, the latter a lunch of cornbread, Tom Lincoln's favorite dish. Hazel could teach reading and writing, after a fashion, and a little arithmetic, but his great qualification for his office lay in the strength of his arm, and his power and readiness to, quote, whip the big boys, end quote. But, as time wore on, the infelicities of Lincoln's life in this neighborhood became unsupportable. He was gaining neither riches nor credit, and being a wanderer by natural inclination, began to long for a change. His decision, however, was hastened by certain troubles which culminated in a desperate combat between him and one Abraham Enlow. They fought like savages, but Lincoln obtained a signal and permanent advantage by biting off the nose of his antagonist, so that he went bereft all the days of his life, and published his audacity and its punishment wherever he showed his face. But the affray and the fame of it made Lincoln more anxious than ever to escape from Kentucky. He resolved, therefore, to leave these scenes forever, and seek a roof-tree beyond the Ohio. It has pleased some of Mr. Lincoln's biographers to represent this removal of his father as a flight from the taint of slavery. Nothing could be further from the truth. There were not at the time more than fifty slaves in all Hardin County, which then composed a vast area of territory. It was practically a free community. Lincoln's more fortunate relatives in other parts of the state were slaveholders, and there is not the slightest evidence that he ever disclosed any conscientious scruples concerning the institution. The lives of his father and mother, and the history and character of the family before their settlement in Indiana, were topics upon which Mr. Lincoln never spoke, but with great reluctance and significant reserve. In his family Bible he kept a register of births, marriages, and deaths, every entry being carefully made in his own handwriting. It contains the date of his sister's birth in his own, of the marriage and death of his sister, of the death of his mother, and of the birth and death of Thomas Lincoln. 
the rest of the record is almost wholly devoted to the Johnstons and their numerous descendants and connections. It has not a word about the Hankses or the Sparrows. It shows the marriage of Sally Bush, first with Daniel Johnston, and then with Thomas Lincoln, but it is entirely silent as to the marriage of his own mother. It does not even give the date of her birth, but barely recognizes her existence and demise, to make the vacancy which was speedily filled by Sarah Johnston. Footnote. The leaf of the Bible which contains these entries is in the possession of Colonel Chapman. An artist was painting his portrait, and asked him for a sketch of his early life. He gave him this brief memorandum. Quote, I was born February 12, 1809, in the then Hardin County, Kentucky, at a point within the now county of LaRue, a mile or a mile and a half from where Hodgins Mill now is. My parents being dead, and my own memory not serving, I know of no means of identifying the precise locality. It was on Nolan Creek. End quote. To the compiler of the Dictionary of Congress, he gave the following. Quote, Born February 12, 1809, in Hardin County, Kentucky. Education defective. Profession a lawyer. Have been a captain of volunteers in the Black Hawk War. Postmaster at a very small office. Four times a member of the Illinois Legislature, and was a member of the lower house of Congress. End quote. To a campaign biographer who applied for particulars of his early history, he replied that they could be of no interest, that they were but, quote, the short and simple annals of the poor, end quote. Quote, the chief difficulty I had to encounter, writes this latter gentleman, was to induce him to communicate the homely facts and incidents of his early life. He seemed to be painfully impressed with the extreme poverty of his early surroundings, the utter absence of all romantic and heroic elements, and I know he thought poorly of the idea of attempting a biographical sketch for campaign purposes. Mr. Lincoln communicated some facts to me about his ancestry, which he did not wish published, and which I have never spoken of or alluded to before. I do not think, however, that Dennis Hanks, if he knows anything about these matters, would be very likely to say anything about them. End of chapter 1 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida